0: The first degree. first degree. First degree. First degree.
2: First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the
0: paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life.
1: We had gotten home from watching fireworks on the 4th. And I get this call and she's frantic. And I said, okay, have you called 911? She said, they're here now. I said, okay, I'll meet you at the hospital. The more information I got, I was relaying to my best friend and we were really just a few hours in when we're on the phone and she goes, do you think she did it?
2: Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vannick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. She is in her first degree hoodie that is not available anymore, but it was one of our best. You're looking good. I love this hoodie and I cropped it. I cut it so it was a little cropped. Ooh. I crop all of them. I love them. I know. We got some good merch. I should make some new merch, but there still is. We still have a little bit of merch available, probably like some random sizes of a few things, but uh, you should go to our website and snag what we have left. And while you're at it, join our Patreon. Yes. Shit's popping off on Patreon. We have so many episodes, dozens and
3: dozens of well-researched, full true crime episodes. It's not like a bonus content situation. It's good stuff. And people seem to love it. And we love it. And we work really hard on it, equally hard as we do here on our traditional episodes.
2: Yeah. I mean, we are working our asses off for Patreon. And there's over we've, it's been out for over a year. So there's a, over 50 episodes backlogged that you can listen to, full episodes, true crime cases. Um, and yeah, so that was our little housekeeping for the day, I think. Do we have anything yes. else to talk about? No. Well, should we get into the day? I think so. What is it? Today is a little bit bleak. Um, It is June 14th. We're already like well into summer and it is still freezing in LA. You know, I fucking hate that, but it really is. I know it makes me very sad, but it is international bath day. Alexis loves a bath. I haven't taken a bath in 30 years. Oh my gosh. I take a few a week.
3: <laughs> Since I moved in with Matt, it's way fewer. I used to take them every night. I think that was just this loneliness. I don't know. Yeah. But need a little warmth, you know? Yeah, exactly. But I'm like a big proponent of the bath. That's how, that's the only way I can get a perfect leg shave in. I can't do it oh, in the shower.
2: Okay. I just mm-hmm. get way too overheated and I feel so disgusting after a bath, which I sure. guess is the opposite. It is also. World Blood Donor Day. Important. And uh, honestly, National Strawberry Shortcake Day. But that's about it.
3: Yeah. I'm going to say I'm good on the days.
2: (laughs) Donate the blood. That's an important one. That is an important one. Go donate some blood today. And uh, that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you.
3: If there's anything the last few years have taught us, it's that our friendships should not be taken for granted. If we're lucky, we have a handful of super close friends to carry with us through the ups and downs life brings our way, and if we have a special bond with a bestie, well, that can make life much easier. But what happens if, even after many years of secure and fulfilling connection, one friend develops a sense of insecurity in a friendship that leads them to seek out the attention of their BFF in kind of problematic ways, like? overly problematic ways, exhibiting behaviors as adults that we long thought we'd grown out of, like that feeling of high school jealousy, of feeling left out, of needing the sole attention from your bestie, and acting out in various ways if you don't get it. So whether this be out of insecurity or for a host of other possible reasons, when does a seemingly harmless and almost endearing admiration for a friend become an unhealthy obsession, prompting genuine cause for concern? And how exactly should bystanders handle this if they're seeing
2: it? Even worse, what happens if that obsession turns deadly? So we begin today's case on July 4th of 2016. In the world of science, NASA's Juno spacecraft successfully entered Jupiter's orbit. And on the Billboard charts, One Dance by Drake featuring WizKid and Kylo is enjoying its seventh week at number one, closely followed by Justin Timberlake's Can't Stop the Feeling from the movie Trolls. And at the movies, Disney's Finding Dory, the sequel to Finding Nemo, was at the top of the film charts, with moviegoers also going to see Alexander Sarsgaard starring in The Legend of Tarzan. And of course, like I said, it was July 4th, so people across the country were celebrating the 4th of July, you know, doing what you do, going to firework displays, enjoying cookouts, going to the beach, drinking some booze, and getting together with families. All of Jack's favorite things, by the way. That's a big JV holiday. Hell yeah.
3: The setting for today's case is Athens, Alabama. Situated in the far north of the state in Limestone County, the city of around 25,000 people is located 95 miles north of the city of Birmingham. Founded in 1818, Athens is one of the oldest incorporated cities in the state. And the economy originally relied on the cotton and railroad industries. But in the mid-20th century, the aerospace sector started to take over. However, the city's historic homes and buildings dating back to the antebellum period still provide a window into yesteryear in a picturesque setting amidst the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. And of course, we know there's a much darker history involved in all of this as well, but that's for another time.
2: And our first degree for today's case is named Amy. And Amy grew up in Athens, which is one of those places where there's lots of connections between local residents with entire generations calling the area home.
1: It's Alabama but it's not necessarily what everybody thinks of when they think of Alabama. Athens is too big to be a small town, and yet it is. You might not know everybody, but you're probably related to them. I would go into the grocery store, you see somebody you know you're supposed to know, and you have to start the conversation with, how are you guys doing? Hoping you can figure out who they are. Or I would go visit churches, and they'd be like, "Now, who are your parents?" And I would either just have to give the one generation. Sometimes I would have to tell them who my grandparents were. But inevitably, they'd be like, "Oh yeah, there's maybe five big names in the city, you know, old names."
3: Around 2011, Amy met a young woman named Stephanie through their mutual best friend, a woman we're calling Heather, and the women were all members of a small, informal music group with a love of singing complex harmonies, accompanying themselves on the guitar as well. So these women got together just for fun to do all of this.
1: My very dearest, best friend. She's like, I want you to come meet this girl that we met, Stephanie. She and another mutual friend had met her working in the local theater. It was the equivalent of a girls' night. We would all meet up at somebody's house. We'd have multiple guitars. It was completely for fun, but then we started kind of picking up quote-unquote gigs. Me and one of them ended up doing a regular thing at a restaurant every week, and that was awesome. It was just tips and, like, free drinks and stuff, but it was still awesome.
2: Stephanie was pregnant when Amy met her and newly married to her husband who we're going to call Jason. Amy didn't know much about Stephanie's background, but the sweet and kind 20-year-old had been adopted by her parents back when Stephanie was a toddler, taking her out of a situation where her birth mom had apparently been neglectful. And by all accounts, Stephanie thrived with her adoptive family and showed a real talent for acting and musical theater.
1: Stephanie was fresh out of high school. She had went and spent about a year in college but came home. She had gotten married and then immediately gotten pregnant. She was easily 10 years younger than us. She had just become part of their central group when they got together to make music together. Beautiful, amazing, very, very talented.
3: On January 18th, 2012, Stephanie and her husband, Jason, welcomed their first child, a daughter they named Zadie Wren. And she was the apple of her parents' eyes, and we're looking at pictures of Zadie, and she's like a straight up, truly adorable child, so cute, like she'd be in commercials, just a sincere, innocent, adorable looking child like they're they're all innocent, they're all adorable, but Zadie had like a special
2: zing for sure, yeah. So cute. So, Zadie loved dancing, singing songs from the movie Frozen, dressing up, and you can really tell that she inherited her love of performing from her mom. And the toddler was really sassy, outgoing, inquisitive, and, you know, just so freaking cute. Right. And Zadie soon
3: formed a very close friendship with Heather's daughter, who was the same age as Zadie. So, What we're seeing here is Stephanie and best friend Heather and their daughters are becoming best friends. And the two little girls spent every waking moment together becoming more like sisters than like friends.
1: I understand people say, oh, she was just like an angel. No, this kid, she was highly intelligent and sweet as can be. She was beautiful inside and out.
2: The women's music group continued to meet regularly, and Amy and Stephanie became really close. And Amy actually bonded with Zadie because she was in such close proximity to the two of them. And one of Amy's favorite memories of Zadie was teaching her how to make what Zadie called magic soup, but it was really just ramen. And honestly, my favorite soup in the world. It is magic.
1: It wasn't just those gatherings either. Me and Stephanie actually became really close, closer Then I I guess I realized we were. We were going out to eat. We were going to karaoke. You know, she was coming and hanging over. We were double dating. So there were times when she and I, you would have thought we were the best friends.
3: Stephanie was involved in the local theater group, starring in plays and in musicals. But despite making lots of new friends, she was still there for those she cared about most. Like when Amy's dad passed away in March 2016, Stephanie stepped up like a good friend would. And Amy never forgot her kindness.
1: This girl came and cleaned my house while we were making preparations for the funeral and everything was so chaotic. And she came and cleaned my house like three days in a row. Who does that but like a good person?
2: One day, a few months later in early July, Amy got a shocking call from Stephanie saying that something terrible had happened to Zadie.
1: It was either right around 10 or midnight. We had gotten home from watching the fireworks on the 4th, and I get this call, and she's frantic. She just said, Zadie, stop breathing. And I said, "Okay. have you called 911? She said, they're here now. I said, "Okay, I'll meet you at the hospital.
3: A panicked Stephanie had called 911 after hearing a strange noise on the baby monitor in Zadie's room. And when she went to see what was going on, she found Zadie stuck between the bed and the wall, and she was not breathing.
2: Stephanie dialed 911 and started CPR, which is how first responders found her when they arrived. From Athens, Zadie was transferred to Huntsville Hospital about 45 minutes away.
1: After the initial testing and everything, they didn't see any brain function. They thought she was essentially gone. You know, she had to be on a breathing tube. Stephanie said that she was sleeping. She is a very, very deep sleeper, like the kind of person you have to kick pretty much to get them to move it all in their sleep. She said that she heard something strange on the monitor and when she went into Zadie's bedroom, she had gotten stuck between the wall and the bed. You know, like what you worry about with infants. Then the dairy start coming, did she have a seizure because she was having seizures at that point. Did she have a seizure, get stuck and get suffocated? Or did she somehow manage to not wake up and got stuck and now she's having a seizures.
3: Three days later, there was still no improvement. Zadie's prognosis was poor and there was no brain activity. So Stephanie and Jason made the heart-wrenching decision to turn off their daughter's life support.
2: As with any sudden child death where Amy lived, police were automatically involved from the outset. Amy even knew the detective that was assigned to the case who was interviewing everybody
1: came and he talked to everybody and he's like, well, this is just something anytime there's an unexpected death, it's just something we have to do. Just dotting the I's, crossing the T's, just don't worry about it.
3: Zadie had no obvious signs of injury or trauma, but there was something about the circumstances surrounding Zadie's death that Amy couldn't quite put her finger on.
1: How does a four-year-old get stuck between the wall and her mattress and not wake up well enough? to at least scream for help. If a strange noise woke Stephanie up, then her daughter calling for help surely would have woken her up. The more information I got, I was relaying to my best friend, and we were really just a few hours in when we're on the phone, and she goes, do you think she did it? And I said, I don't know.
2: But why? Suspicions, especially ones that are as grave as this, do not come out of nowhere. How does somebody come to these conclusions about the death of a little girl, much less the daughter of their close friend? And to find out what happened, you know the drill.
3: We got to go back. In the summer of 2016, Amy was rocked by the news that her friend Stephanie Smith's
2: four-year-old daughter, Zadie, had suddenly died. Amy started looking back and really racking her head for any red flags, and she re-examined their entire friendship. And what Amy realized is that Stephanie repeatedly told lies for no apparent reason whatsoever. And she also became obsessed with their mutual best friend, Heather. And this is something that Amy especially noticed. But the question is,
3: did these hindsight observations play into Zadie's sudden death? And if so, how?
1: She had one specific friend group that we knew about and they knew my best friend and tried to invite her to things. And now Stephanie was obsessed with my friend, quite literally obsessed. And she got mad that my friend was invited to hang out with these other people. So this person that she loves beyond measure was not allowed to hang out with her other group of friends. If me and my best friend were sitting on the couch, Stephanie would come up and make sure she sat in between us and slightly turn her body so that I was out of the conversation. And I would just roll my eyes and go, oh, well, it's just her.
3: Amy recalls one night in particular that made her question her friendship with Stephanie, something that put her own safety in jeopardy, something that demonstrated a level of selfishness that Amy hadn't previously noticed
1: most bizarre thing that happened between me and her didn't actually have anything to do with lying. It was just this random night that we decided that we were going to drink some wine. And until then, I had not really been a wine person. The problem is that me being inexperienced, I didn't realize how the wine was going to hit me. <laughs> and we were drinking it out of these, like, large fast food cups with a straw. I thought I had had, you know, the equivalent of maybe three beers worth. And then all of a sudden, my whole face is numb. And I'm, like, staggering around, barely, you know, can go to the restroom by myself, kind of drunk. We were outside. And she just kept going and refilling them. And it was these two huge, massive bottles of wine. It had just happened. And I did not, I don't like being like that. That is not okay, especially when I drove there, you know. So by that point, it's like 10 o'clock at night, and she's like, you need to go now. And I just looked at her, and I was like, what do you mean go? And she's like, I'm ready to go to bed. You need to go now. And, I mean, I can still hardly stand up by myself. So I said, well, I'll just go sleep in my car, in your driveway. And she's like, no, you can't leave your car here.
3: So after this night of drinking together like two close friends— Stephanie was adamant that Amy had to leave. She didn't care that Amy was drunk. She wanted her off her property. And Amy didn't get it. There was no pressing reason why. And Amy even offered to sleep in her car outside. And Stephanie had a problem with that too. So when Amy was telling me this, Jack, I think about our friends and our friendship. And it's like, I would kick my boyfriend
2: out of the bed if one of my friends needed to spend the night. Absolutely. like. That is such a red flag for me. I know. Like, hearing about that is just so, it really is the most selfish thing that you could do. You're putting your friend in immediate danger. Amy obviously was saying that she doesn't drink that much and she was drinking so much of that wine and could barely walk, let alone drive. Like, and to make a friend now get in their car and force them to drive home, like, that is, it's cruel behavior, really.
3: Well, and it puts other drivers in danger. And it's like Amy has kids of her own. It's just, it's baffling.
2: Yeah, it's really insane. So needless to say, this whole thing shocked Amy and it shocked us. It's probably shocking you as a listener. And it made her extremely uncomfortable. So at that point, Amy questioned her friendship with Stephanie following the incident and had no desire to be around her. And I don't blame her. After all, Stephanie was supposed to be her close friend who looked out for her. And now it seemed like she wanted Amy to endanger herself for no obvious reason.
1: It made no sense. It still doesn't make any sense. Her husband got off work. I waited for him to get home, and he was just as confused as I was because she was still adamant that I was not staying there. I was not allowed to sleep in my car, much less on her couch.
3: Stephanie's husband, Jason, was as confounded as Amy by his wife's sudden, not to mention selfish and callous attitude. And Stephanie's husband didn't have an issue with Amy staying there, because that was where my head went. I'm like, maybe the husband, there was some reason, yeah. but that wasn't the case. Either way, even though Jason took Amy's side and was like, let her stay, Stephanie did not budge on this.
1: He's like the sweetest guy ever, just like a teddy bear. And they lived like out in the county, and I lived in town, so it's not like a five-minute drive. So what he ended up doing at, like, midnight, when we really just couldn't wait any longer because she was putting up such a stink about it, he followed me back home. And she, like, called the next day trying to act like everything was normal. And I didn't answer. I was livid. I was beyond angry. I was talking to my best friend about it, and she's like, oh, well, you have to think. She's still young. She's immature. And I'm like, bullcrap. That's not showing love. That's not caring about somebody. I don't care how drunk I could possibly be. I'm not just going to kick somebody else who's going to have to drive out of my house. And especially when the front that she had been putting on was, she's so sweet. And she's so easy breezy and kind and all that kind of. Thing, and all of a sudden, she's not that person. I get along with everybody, but I'm not going to put up with
3: that. Amy took a good long break from Stephanie following the evening in question, but due to their shared mutual friends and due to enough time passing, Amy eventually let the event go and found herself back in Stephanie's orbit.
2: And Amy decided to be the bigger person. And by that time, Stephanie and Jason had separated, so Stephanie was now a single mom. And frankly, her friends thought that this was a positive thing, given how irretrievable the marriage was said to have become.
1: I do have a hard time, like, permanently holding things against people. I'm forgiving. People mess up. You know, people change. She seemed to be maturing. She had went and got a real job she was in school and it seemed like a good thing a healthier thing for her to not be involved in the situation she was involved with with him i thought that she was finally growing up and so i let her back in
2: month. That's code degree50 at slash degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active.
3: It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. the com. The Real realreal is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermès, Cartier, Prada, Visit RealReal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Amy was back on speaking terms with Stephanie after her strange behavior resulted in serious issues between Amy and Stephanie. Amy questioned their friendship, rightfully so. But now, as their friendship was recalibrating, Amy noticed that a lot seemed to have changed within her friend. Like we said, Stephanie had split up with her husband, and Stephanie was in the midst of kind of a personal transformation on top of that. She'd come out as queer. And this surprised Amy somewhat, but Stephanie seemed sincerely happy, so everyone was on board and in support of their friend's journey with this.
1: Kind of in the interim there is when me and my friend were performing at the restaurant every week, and she came in with a, another group of friends that I didn't know at all, dressed completely different, acting completely different. I ran into her at a high school football game and she had fake earplugs on and fake facial piercings and her clothes were completely different. And at that point I looked at her and I was like, why are you dressed that way? And she was didn't really have an answer. She's just like, oh, I don't know. I just felt like, you know, being weird today. And that is when I realized that she was different people for different social groups. I have a mental illness. I have sympathy, empathy for anybody struggling. But there is something different about this. There was a lot of times that I quit talking to her for months at a time, not because we got in an argument, but just because you're full of bullcrap. You just keep lying. I'm done. This is just stupid.
3: So despite the past periods of tension in their friendship, Amy and Stephanie started hanging out again frequently. But Stephanie's work hours meant that her daughter, Zadie, was often in the care of Stephanie's family or her ex-husband Jason and his family. And in the meantime, Jason had filed for divorce, seeking joint custody of their daughter.
1: They had this strange, discombobulated plan for custody. And it never seemed to work. Stephanie was constantly complaining that she never got to see her daughter. And so we kept telling her, you know, you, you can't change this. You can assert yourself and say, I want my baby. I've been her sole caregiver until, you know, this separation. She needs to be here with me.
2: Then one night in late 2015, Amy received a troubling text message. Stephanie had been sexually assaulted.
1: I got a text from my best friend that said, I just spent the entire night at the hospital with Stephanie. She said that Stephanie had called her, you know, the middle of the night and told her that she had been raped at work. She said that she worked at a factory and she had came out on break or lunch or whatever, and just heard somebody stand behind her and say, just be quiet. Then this will be over soon or something. And so she never saw him. It just happened. And she just left and went home and called my best friend. And my best friend is totally type A. She is going to get stuff done.
3: So Heather took charge as she and Amy rallied around their friend. And like any close friends, they believed Stephanie because why wouldn't you? False claims of sexual assault are far more rare than people think. But we're mentioning this for a specific reason, which we'll get into a little later in the context of Stephanie's behavior.
1: So she says we're going to to the emergency room. And Stephanie is like, there's no point. I'm taking a shower. And she said, no, we're going. And we're going to the police department. We're doing this. So they went and they didn't find anything. She did a police report. They pulled footage and they didn't see anything. And I said, well, we're going to believe her because that's what you do. You know, When a woman says that happens, that's what you do. You believe her. You support her. If it ends up not being true, then whatever. She needed something from you anyway. If it is true, you don't want to be that person that turns their back on somebody that really needs support. So we believed her wholeheartedly. There was no doubt to anybody. We believed her 150%.
2: Then Amy told us that not long afterwards, Stephanie told them that she was verbally and physically attacked at work by a man again, and this time it was in the office. But she didn't report it to the police and was cagey about why another coworker who was there didn't hear anything or make a report. And nothing else came of this, but Amy and Heather thought that it was a kind of weird story.
3: So then on another night, Stephanie reached out to Amy saying that she wasn't feeling so great mentally. So okay, Amy hears this and, of course, rushes over to be with her friend and check on her.
1: She texts us late one night and she said, somebody needs to come be with me. I'm afraid that I'm going to do something. I went over there. I found her on her back balcony in the complete dark, just sitting there, like, blank-eyed, kind of droopy. And I said, okay, what's going on? Because is asleep in the other room. Well, when she said that she was going to do something, did she mean to Zadie or to herself?
2: But then Stephanie made a confession about Heather that Amy hadn't seen coming at all.
1: She just said, you know I'm in love with her, right? I said, to be honest with you, I don't think you're in love with her. I think you want to be her. And she goes, you're probably right. So it starts this conversation, strangely enough, about my best friend. So she's talking not in jealousy so much she's just like i don't understand why i can't have what she has and it was a conversation about you have to be yourself you know you have to identify what you actually want to get out of this life and that's what you go after you don't go after what somebody else went after to find their success you be you i mean we talked for a couple of hours i felt like things were better, but I gave her ideas to try to help her when things were especially hard. Talk to her about her medicine, you know, basically a counseling session, very long counseling session, and I went home. And that was the last I was ever said about that. But in retrospect, the call for attention for somebody to come there and the look she had, just a blank, empty-eyed staring straight ahead like she was in a completely different world kind of thing.
3: In hindsight, with this additional context, Amy and Heather believe that the assaults never happened and that Stephanie made up the allegations to get attention from Heather. And these women know Stephanie very well, right? Those of you listening, it's like, we weren't there. Women should be believed without a doubt. But this pattern of behavior they were able to make this conclusion given the fact that they loved this woman very much. You know what I mean? So this is a very hard conclusion to come to, especially about your friend. But by this point, once they made this conclusion, based on the information they have, Amy was upset. She felt used and exploited and she was over it.
1: I'm like, I'm done. She is obviously not changed.
3: Amy realized that so much of Stephanie's behavior was driven by her obsession with Heather. Here's an example. Stephanie would get upset when Heather would go on vacation with her own family. And again, Heather has her own family to attend to. And she has a friend being angry that she's spending time with her own family on vacation.
1: She didn't want to go on vacation and she wanted to come over and spend more time with her before she left. My best friend's trying to get her family ready well, I want- and she didn't have time for Stephanie.
2: It was only a few days later that Zadie ended up in a hospital after Stephanie found her unresponsive. And despite what had happened, Amy pushed aside any resentment that she felt towards Stephanie and was really there for her in a time of need. But Heather at this time was still away on vacation.
1: I'm hugging her and not letting go of her. If that's what you do. That's just basic. You know, you comfort somebody who's freaking out. All of the bad blood It disappeared. So she said that she tried to get my best friend on the phone and couldn't. I had her husband's number, so I went and called him, and he had her call us right back. I went outside to talk to her, and one of the first things she said was, so is it serious or is this just one of Stephanie's things? And I said, no, this time it's serious. They don't know what's happening. So at that point, my friend was trying to decide, you know, well, do I stay on vacation because Stephanie's just doing her thing? or is this serious? They came home a few days early.
3: So we're going to pause here to talk a bit more about what we know about Stephanie's mental health. So Stephanie had multiple mental health diagnoses, including depression, rapid cycling, bipolar disorder, and anxiety. But she'd also been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which we need to explain a bit more to give context into her behavior and its impact on her, her relationships, and on those around her as well.
2: So borderline personality disorder or emotional dysregulation is characterized by impulsivity, rejection, hypersensitivity, paranoia, the inability to maintain stable relationships, and unstable self-image, and this can lead to self-harm and suicide. And it's really common for somebody with BPD to have other mental health diagnoses as well. And people with BPD do things like suddenly cut people off and persistently lie. And they do this because they have a fear of abandonment and create an alternate reality to help them escape past trauma. Right,
3: so listening to those symptoms and maybe those of you listening Can think of somebody like this. And it's impossible not to have some compassion for someone who's legitimately suffering from these symptoms. Like, imagine the difficulty of trying to maintain a healthy relationship or getting people to forgive you after you cut them off abruptly and just trying to find happiness in a difficult world as it is. And beyond the difficulties Jack just listed, those suffering from BPD can also seem to drastically change who they are around certain people. Due to this lack of self identity. This is known as the chameleon effect, and they work to become like people they want to be around, sometimes becoming hyper focused on one person known as a favorite person. And as for the cause of the disorder, many people with BPD report experiencing severe childhood
2: trauma. Right. And in Stephanie's blog post, she delved into her own diagnosis. She wrote, Paranoia is a symptom that I struggle with daily. I've lost a friend during this grief process, and it's because she thinks I did something horrible. Now, there are whispers around town about that same horrible thing, and the paranoia seeps in. Right. She continued and said, I have
3: a deep-seated fear of abandonment and a very black and white way of seeing people. This can be triggered by simple things, a misread text, not being invited somewhere with a group of friends, not getting a text back, misinterpreting things friends say. I'm constantly afraid that everyone is only tolerating me and will eventually leave me. This makes me an extremely needy friend on a good day. On my bad days, I'm downright unbearable. I mean, that It's hard not to feel compassion for that because she has obviously some moments of self-awareness. So in this context of Stephanie, based on information Amy provided, we know that this apparently happened with her birth mom neglecting her, resulting in her adoption, right? So we know the childhood trauma is there. And due to the stigma and misunderstanding around BPD, it's one of the most difficult and complex conditions to treat because some people, some people just suck, Like a lot of these things, like people who lie, some people are just narcissists who lie. Like any one of these standalone symptoms can be indicative of something else. So I can see why it would be so difficult to diagnose. And while people with BPD usually take medication, it's to treat symptoms of other mental illnesses, not the BPD itself. And aside from maybe a mood stabilizer to help regulate intense emotions, it's difficult to treat.
2: By far the most effective treatment available to date is a structured form of psychotherapy called dialectical behavior therapy, or DPD. And it helps the person work through harmful behavior patterns and coping strategies.
3: Stephanie's treatment is, as far as her therapy, I mean, we're not sure where she was at with that. And even getting people with BPD to engage in consistent therapy is half the battle itself. Clients often ghost their therapists or lash out at them personally affronted when presented with affirmative strategies to help them cope. So we're telling all of you this because it's super important information to know in terms of the stigma surrounding BPD, but it's also maybe perhaps more important to know that those with BPD are far more likely to harm themselves than harm others. Most people with BPD do not go on to commit violent crimes. Most are suffering silently, without proper understanding or care. So in the case of Stephanie, you have to consider the possibility that she had other much deeper flaws within
2: her moral compass that had absolutely nothing to do with her BPD diagnosis. So we're going to get back to our story. Amy couldn't ignore the feeling in her gut that Stephanie was somehow the cause of Zadie being in the hospital. And when a decision was made to turn off Zadie's life support on July 7th due to a lack of brain activity, three days after she was found unconscious, Amy felt even more sickened Not just with how things turned out, but by Stephanie's apparent callousness.
1: It was almost like I was walking around in shock. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I called my grandmother and cried and cried and told her, I think my friend did something to her child and I don't know what to do. A couple of days later, when they were running the final test, Stephanie said she just couldn't stand. She couldn't stand being there. I found out that what had happened in that room is was the one holding Zadie as she was slipping away. And Stephanie stood up and said, I need you, and headed towards the door. And just sort of looked at her like, but, um," and one of the other family members said, I'll hold her. You go on. And she made leave the room where her child was dying.
3: So we know the cops were involved from the jump due to the circumstances and Zadie's age. And as part of their routine investigation, they had to search Stephanie's apartment. And she gave them the same version of events that she had provided to hospital staff earlier.
1: Later, we asked her if he had taken anything. And she was like, he said he took the bed sheet, but that he didn't find anything, and that was it. But went to get clothes at the apartment for her to change and saw that the monitor that stephanie had supposedly heard Zadie on was sitting by the front door unplugged i called and i reported it and he never got the message as if it's not weird enough that a four-year-old manages to suffocate herself in a way that only an infant really typically would the monitor that woke Stephanie up was not plugged in or even in the same room as her.
2: Everyone hoped Zadie's autopsy would provide more answers, but sadly her cause of death was undetermined. Zadie's family arranged for a private autopsy to be conducted, but it too was inconclusive. And even in the aftermath of Zadie's funeral, things just did not seem right.
1: This has crushed so many people. We started a GoFundMe. Raised about $10,000 and then found out that there was actually a burial policy. So she just got to keep the money. Everybody's watching this. She goes and starts getting tattoos and getting a new apartment and new clothes and new furniture.
3: Amy and Heather couldn't shake their suspicions about Zadie's death because nothing about Stephanie's account made sense. So they decided to have a very frank and delicate discussion with her friend.
1: There were so many little things that me and my best friend finally decided that somebody had to say something to her. I mean, if you can imagine what it's like to look at somebody and go, did you kill your daughter? But if anybody's gonna do it, my best friend is gonna be the one strong enough to do it. But she asked her, was there an accident? Did something happen? Did you black out? Is there any way that you did something that made this happen. And I did interject with, sometimes when people have mental illness, things happen that they can't control. This isn't about blaming. There's so many questions because the autopsy hasn't shown anything. Nobody can figure out what happened. We're just trying to figure it out. And she's a really good actress. I've seen her in plays and things. She was trying to make herself cry. And that wasn't successful. She couldn't make any tears come. And she said, what? How can you ask me that? I tried to save her. And we're like speechless, because what exactly do you follow that up with? It was quiet for a minute. And then I kid you not. She goes, so they're delivering my new living room furniture next week. Her best friend had asked her point blank. If she killed her child, and within 60 seconds, the girl is telling her about living room furniture being delivered.
0: Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere.
3: In October of 2016, three months after the sudden and mysterious death of her daughter, Zadie, Stephanie Smith was interviewed by the Department of Human Resources, which is the Alabama equivalent of social services. And based off a previous discussion with her friends, Stephanie assumed her friend and Amy, our interviewee for this episode, had been the one to contact police. And Amy, while she had her suspicions, she absolutely
2: was not the person who had flagged this to the police. But the case was still open and Zadie's death was considered suspicious. But the problem was police couldn't prove anything. Yet Stephanie never wavered from her version of events.
1: She said that they had called her in. It was just a follow-up meeting. It was just completely normal. It doesn't mean anything. So she said that she went to this DHR appointment and the cops were there. And they asked her, do you know why you're here? You know, do you know why there's any question about what happened to your daughter?
3: And authorities weren't the only ones giving Stephanie the side eye, yet Amy was the only one in Stephanie's firing lane. Like, Stephanie decided that Amy was her enemy and the one causing all of this, you know, heat on her.
1: So many people were wondering. Me and my best friend didn't realize it, but everybody apparently was wondering except for her family. And I was an easy explanation. I was spreading lies and rumors about her. She even talked about it in one of her blog posts.
2: At the same time, Stephanie was completely bereft by her daughter's sudden passing. She once again took to her blog post to express herself. In one entry, she wrote, You can't predict that your healthy four-year-old daughter will have a seizure and suffocate. So how to deal with guilt? I have to literally say to myself out loud, it was not your fault. I came in minutes too late, but it was not my fault. I did everything I could. I have survivor's guilt. Seeing her tombstone has scarred me. In another, she wrote, At times,
3: I think I'm the worst person in the world. I feel I deserve this pain, that I've done something to warrant her loss. That's bullshit. I didn't deserve it. It just happened. Like, bad things in life do. I've been handed the shittiest card in life, the grieving, mentally ill mother. I failed to save her. So this was followed by, What happened to Z was a freak occurrence. So freaky, people actually accused me of killing her. Yes, you read that right. That's how desperate we are for answers. I get no closure, her death remains a mystery, and I couldn't have predicted it or prevented it, just like I couldn't save her. My little girl was ripped from this world with no explanation as to how or why.
2: At the same time, Stephanie was prolific in her posts on social media, reposting old pictures of Zadie as well as photos of herself crying over her daughter's sudden death. But one really odd post on April 6th of 2017 was a picture of a newborn baby with the caption, "'She's our new foster baby, eight days old, five pounds, three ounces.'" I am in love and also in pain. So it appeared that Stephanie had somehow been approved to
3: not only foster a child, but a newborn baby. All while her daughter's death only nine months earlier was kind of looming in legal purgatory, considered suspicious, and the case still open. So who approved this and how did this
2: happen exactly? Then on April 12th, 2017, nine months after Zadie died, 25-year-old Stephanie walked into the Athens Police Department. She wanted to talk, and as she spoke to investigators, the whole terrible story, or at least Stephanie's new version of it, came out. She told them that she placed a pillow on Zadie's face and smothered her as she lay
3: sleeping. When Stephanie removed the pillow, Zadie wasn't breathing, and Stephanie called
2: 911. And Stephanie went on to say that she didn't know why she killed her daughter. She told investigators about her mental health history, and by the time Zadie was taken to the hospital, Stephanie hadn't taken her prescribed medication for three days. Sometimes, she explained, she would get into a
3: state where she would see red, and on the day in question, she wasn't fully cognizant of what she was doing to Zadie. And apparently only five days before this, Stephanie had posted a photo on social media of 13 pills in her hand with the caption, this is what it takes
2: for me to barely function. Stephanie confessed that she lied about what happened, at least twice, because she was scared of what would happen to her. She claimed she only came forward now because she was scared of harming herself if she continued to keep the truth bottled up. She added that she just
3: texted five friends that day, confessing to what she'd done to Zadie. Only one of these people ended up telling the police that they'd received this news. And while it's hard to blame Stephanie's friends for not coming forward, if they had no idea whether to believe her or not, it was still troubling for police who planned on investigating those who had the information but didn't call the cops.
2: Stephanie was charged with one count of capital murder and held without bail in the county jail. Under Alabama law, it was automatically a capital offense given that Zadie was under the age of 14. And if convicted, Stephanie would be facing either the death penalty or life without parole. Five months later
3: at her arraignment in September 2017, she entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity and was headed to trial. And according to a report by CNN, most women who kill their children have some type of mental illness, but they're usually not receiving appropriate treatment at the time of the murder. It's also typical that for these women, deep remorse kicks in very close after the, you know, event is over uh, once they realize what they've done. And yeah, of course, you'd think, you'd hope.
2: And while Stephanie's mental health diagnosis may offer some explanation as to what happened, all of this is really hard to reconcile. The lying, the manipulation, and attention-seeking behaviors exhibited by people with BPD aren't calculated with ill intent. Stephanie is an intelligent woman who, if her blog and social media posts are anything to go by, seems to have a high level of self-awareness about her mental health. Yet the result of her behavior was that it hurt almost everybody around her. And while people certainly can and do truly lack the capacity to distinguish between right and wrong when they commit horrible acts... Amy personally feels that, in Stephanie's case, this was really a cop-out. And when you consider that the narrative Stephanie carefully crafted in her blog post was that Sadie's death was nothing more than an unexplained accident, this just makes it even more disturbing.
1: Now, whether or not she blacked out and didn't realize it because of her mental illness, maybe, except when you start looking at all the lies and her extreme need for Attention. When I went and talked to the police, that's pretty much how I put it. She was obsessed with. Shit. She wanted to be. Shit. She would have done anything she could for to be there and had started to pull away a little bit because didn't believe her second story either. Shit wasn't there for her physically, you know, like she didn't have time to meet up and hang out, drink coffee, whatever. And then all of a sudden, this happened. So, in my opinion, based on me knowing her as closely as I did for a few few years she wanted a different life she had finally got rid of the husband she didn't want she was stuck in a position where she was going to be forced to have more time with the daughter that I'm not saying she did not love her to some extent but I'm saying she didn't want to have to deal with her she wanted her freedom and then she has this opportunity where she's on vacation with her family and she can make her turn around and come home to be with her
3: It's important to acknowledge the significant role that untreated mental illness plays in discussing diminished capacity, but it's a double-edged sword because it can sometimes further stigmatize people with those same mental illnesses who proactively manage their mental health and do the best they can day to day.
1: It really, really makes you judge your own self on your opinions of mental illness. Because after looking at this person who has done these things that seem just selfish, like intentional, like she should have control over these things. There isn't a medication that's going to keep you from doing these things. So how do you look at that? How do you see other people with that diagnosis? Is it because she's a bad person or because she's mentally ill?
2: The whole experience had a profound emotional impact on Amy. As you can imagine, if one of your closest friends killed their child and then lied about it, Not only was Amy grieving the loss of Zadie, but the end of a complex and chaotic friendship with Stephanie.
1: This was really my first experience with hate. I'm not really good with that emotion. It's not something that seems normal to me. But I would have dreams where I would run into her. And in every single dream, I would go and I would strangle her until she was dead. And then I would wake up and not feel bad about it. That's how much I hated her for a long time.
3: Thanks to the global pandemic, jury trials, including Stephanie's, were delayed. But on August 10th of 2020, the now 29-year-old took a plea deal, pleading guilty to the lesser offense of felony murder in return for a life sentence with the possibility of parole. And according to prison records, Stephanie may be eligible to be considered for parole as soon as 2032, after serving only 12 years.
2: The overwhelming anger and vitriol Amy once felt towards her former friend has mellowed with the passage of time. But there's still so much hurt and sorrow to process that it's going to take a lot of people in Zadie and Stephanie's lives a long time to work through.
1: I've thought about reaching out and say, I hope you're doing better. Nothing else. I can't do it yet. But I have went from killing her in my sleep and enjoying the the feeling there to hope there is some redemption for her.
3: What happened to Zadie is so heartbreaking that it's difficult to make sense of all of it. We would never, ever want to oversimplify a case like this, where Stephanie was obviously struggling with a complex psychiatric disorder on top of other conditions. It's nuanced. It's layered. And we don't know how to characterize someone like her and how to separate malicious behavior from mental illness. You can do that a little bit, but no one knows really except for Stephanie, possibly, It's just disturbing and unfathomable on so many levels when you consider all the factors. All it does is leave us wondering how things could have gotten to the stage they did for Stephanie to do something so extremely final, so incomprehensible and chilling, that it means she now has to live without the one person who gave her life some shred of meaning and purpose.
2: Huge thank you to Amy for being our first degree for this story. If you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram. Join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time over there. Join our Patreon if you're looking for some bonus content and come back tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close.
3: Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are Fox 13 Memphis, the Athens News Courier, the Oxygen Network, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, People Magazine, AL.com, WHNT News, the National Education Alliance for Borderline Personality Disorder, the National Library of Medicine, Scientific American, the University of Manchester, and the Associated Press. And as always, our 1st street guest is always our largest source.